Book Six, Chapter Five, Part Three of the History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by HearHis.com. The History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume Two, by Henry Charles Lea. Book Six, Practice, Chapter Five, Part Three, Evidence. Notwithstanding these accessions, and of the fact that in most cases there were several accomplices, the number in the records is surprisingly few. Partly this is explicable by the extreme difficulty of detection, owing to the suppression of witnesses' names and the impediments thrown in the way of the defense, and partly by the indifference of the tribunals, which do not seem to have regarded it as their duty to prosecute perjurers, at least those for the prosecution. When, in 1640, Agustin Gómez de la Peña, cura of Perdigón, was tried in Valladolid for carrying unconsecrated forms of the procession of Corpus Christi, and the case was suspended on the ground that the testimony was perjured, the Suprema, in approving the vote, felt it necessary to order that the fiscal should prosecute the accuser and his witness, showing that this was by no means a matter of course. Be this as it may, in Toledo a record, extending from 1575 to 1610, and embracing 1,172 trials, only contains eight cases of false witness, and a further record of the same tribunal from 1648 to 1794, has not a single one in its aggregate of 1,205 cases. In Valladolid, out of 667 trials occurring between 1622 and 1662, there are but seven cases of false witness. In Madrid, the records from 1703 to 1751 present but a single trial for false witness, and this arose out of a marriage case. Unfortunately, these slender returns do not prove that perjury was uncommon. Philip V, among his other attempted reforms in a decree of July 26, 1705, called attention to the faculty afforded to the execrable wickedness of false denunciations and false witnesses, imposing on many innocent persons the difficult task of protecting honor, property, and life to the perversion and scandal of justice. These enormous and pernicious abuses he attributed to the non-enforcement of the penalties prescribed by the laws, because the moderate punishments, so rarely inflicted, encouraged rather than repressed the audacity of the evil-minded. He therefore ordered the Suprema to see that the legal penalties were rigorously enforced, and the Suprema obediently transmitted this to the tribunals with instructions to conform to it strictly. This seems to have had some effect, but not much. In a collection of all the autos held in Spain from 1721 to 1727, out of 962 sentences, there are but 17 for false witnesses, and these represent only about half that number of cases, for in one there were five accomplices, and in two others, three each. The punishments remain as of old, scourging, galleys, and exile, and there is no difference made between offenders in marriage cases, 
and those involving the death penalty by accusations of Judaism. One of these latter excited considerable interest at the time. Three penitents from Cadiz, undergoing punishments for Judaism, accused fourteen persons of practicing Jewish rites, but they had not studied their parts well, their stories did not accord, and, on being arrested, they confessed. Their intended victims were honored with a special auto-de-fe in Sevilla, November thirtieth, 1722, to which they were conveyed by familiars in the handsomest coaches of the city. In the church of San Pablo they were seated near to the inquisitors, the evidence was publicly read, their innocence was proclaimed, and they were carried home in the coaches. This was followed June 6, 1723, by the auto in which the perjurers were sentenced to two hundred lashes apiece, and the two of them, who were men, to seven years in the galleys. Somewhat similar was a case in Santiago in 1724, when five culprits were concerned, of whom the leader, Pedro Garcia Rodriguez, was punished by two hundred lashes and five years of galleys, which his accomplices had the lashes and eight years of exile. The moderation shown towards perjury increased in the latest period. In 1817, the deacon Manuel González Ribadeniera was prosecuted for it by the Tribunal of Santiago, but when the Samaria was submitted to the Suprema, it sent a commission to the Benedictine abbot of Monteforte to warn the offender that in the future he must conform his dispositions to the truth, as becomes a minister in holy orders. For otherwise he would not be treated with the benignity which now imposed on him only eight days of spiritual exercises in the monastery. Apparently even this was expected to excite resistance, for a further provision threatened him in case of refusal with prosecution according to law. Theoretically, there was laudable care as to the sufficiency of evidence for condemnation. The ancient glossator on the Decretum says that two witnesses are sufficient to convict a pope, but the authorities, both of the old and the new Inquisition, hold that although this is good in ordinary law, yet in a crime entailing such consequences as heresy, especially as the defense is crippled by the suppression of the witnesses' names, there should be much hesitation in convicting a man on the evidence of only two witnesses. Still, two were reckoned sufficient unless they were accomplices. When three were required, and these supported by other indications, yet as one witness was sufficient to justify torture, these scruples did not save the accused, but only exposed him to the risk of convicting himself if his endurance did not exhaust the resources of the torture chamber. In fact, in the secrecy of the tribunal, the discretion of the judges was the only rule, and they could construe the laws of evidence as they saw fit, as when a visitation of Barcelona led the Suprema, in 1568, to rebuke the inquisitors because, on the evidence of a single witness, they prosecuted Gullian Contada, tortured him twice, and, without convicting him, abandoned him to the secular arm for burning. Nor was he the only victim of the kind, for they did the same with Juan del Payen. How much of this occurred elsewhere in the world, we'll never know.
The theory that it required two witnesses to prove a fact was developed into the rule that they must be contestis, that is, witnesses to the same individual act of heresy, before it could be accepted as proved. It is often found urged in the arguments for the defense that the witnesses are singulares and not contestis, but in practice such a defense was usually disregarded or, at most, only led to the unfailing resource of torture. Thus, in the case referred to the Suprema for decision, the tribunal reported that there were many witnesses to prove that the accused was a Jewess, but they were not contestus, for none of them cited the others, but each one named somebody else who could attest the fact. They disposed to the same time and place, but varied as to the years. In the consulta de fe, some members voted for relaxation and others for torture. The matter was sent up to the Suprema, and, whatever its decision may have been, the accused suffered. Even in the 17th century, Escobar affirms the rule absolutely. If one witness swears that he heard Pedro say in the marketplace that God is not a trinity, and another that he heard him say so in a house, it does not convict him, for neither fact is legally proved. Such a definition, however, through too many obstacles in the way of the prosecution not to be eluded, and, in fact, there were classes of cases, such as solicitation in the confessional, in which it was impossible to have more than one witness to each individual act. So, in prosecutions for Judaism, in which the evidence frequently covered a long series of years and turned on infinitesimal incidents in daily life, concurrent witnesses to any single one could scarce be had. Yet the claims of the Inquisition to extreme benignity required this to be understood as Escobar expresses it, while in practice it was disregarded. It was discovered that witnesses could be contestis in genere when they testified to different acts of heresy, and thus make full proof. It is true that Rojas, after citing authorities on both sides, concludes that the rule requiring two concurrent witnesses to a fact must be observed, but one of his authorities asserts that the contrary is the rule in practice, and the Suprema affirmed this, July 27, 1590, by ordering that, where formal heresy is concerned, dispositions as to different ceremonies and points of faith are to be held as contestis. This was inevitable, and it was only sanctioning what had long been the custom in the tribunals. There was much laxity in the character of the evidence accepted. In the secular courts, hearsay testimony was not admitted as proof unless a witness had heard a matter from so many persons as to constitute public fame, in which case it was allowed a certain weight. In the Inquisition, the same rule was nominally followed, but in practice hearsay evidence was welcomed and was utilized. All the gossip and tattle of a village was eagerly accepted and recorded to be reproduced in the publication of evidence furnished to the accused, and it unquestionably had its weight when laid before the consulta de fe which voted the sentence. Witnesses were often brought in to swear that they had heard the direct witness assert that the accused was guilty of the heresy charged, and this was regarded as cumulative evidence. 
Sometimes it happened that these secondary witnesses made a much stronger statement than their principal, and, in such case, the fiscal was directed to insert both in the accusation, with the reserve that the direct testimony would be considered when sentencing, the object being to terrify and mislead the prisoner. The kind of evidence that was gravely accepted and recorded is seen in the trial of the Licenciate Luis de Rivera, who was reconciled in the Toledo Auto de Fe of 1594. In an abstract of the more important testimony, it is stated that the fourth witness had heard a man say that a certain Morisca was a great bitch, for she coupled with other dogs, meaning the said Luis de Givara. Such hearsay gossip was laboriously accumulated to an incredible degree, and it is easy to appreciate its effect on the defendant when cunningly mingled with the direct evidence of the publication of witnesses, which he was required to answer on the spot, item by item, tending to confuse him and leading him to entrap himself. In the trial at Valladolid in 1641 of Sebastian de los Rios, cura of Tombrio, there were fourteen witnesses de visu, or direct, and twenty de odius, or hearsay, and in 1659, Guiomar Atunes was thrown into the secret prison with sequestración on the testimony of one witness de visu and eleven de oídas. Latitudinarianism as to evidence could scarcely go further than in the case of Fray Alonso Capera, tried in 1643, as a curandero for treating disease by conjurations, against whom were testified twenty witnesses, men and women, minors and adults, some direct, others hearsay, and others on suspicion. When it is remembered that no witness, however infamous or unfit, was rejected, we can conceive the quality of the evidence on which depend the fate of the accused. While the Inquisition claimed jurisdiction over all heresy, internal and mental, as well as external and formal, it could only prosecute when heresy was manifested or, or inferiable by external acts or words, and these had to be investigated with the utmost minuteness. The land was filled with those whose external conformity might be but the cloak for secret dissidents. The new Christian was regarded with suspicion as a possible or even a probable apostate whose baptism only served to render him guilty and to subject him to the jurisdiction of the Inquisition. He might be regular in religious observance, be liberal, to church and friar, be a constant purchaser of the crusada indulgences, and yet be secretly a believer in the law of Moses or of Mohammed. It was the business of the Inquisition to detect and punish these apostates. It was rarely that they betrayed their infidelity by imprudent avowals or hasty speeches, except to so-called accomplices or to sell companions, and in the absence of such witnesses, for the most part, the only proof against them arose from their adherence, in the privacy of their homes, to the rites and usages which, through long succession of generations, had become a second nature. It was on this, then, that prosecutions largely depended, 
and the simplest acts that savored of Judaism or of Islam were regarded as incontrovertible proofs of apostasy, requiring reconciliation to the church with all that it implied and, if subsequently persisted in, proving relapse with its penalty of the stake. Familiarity with the practices of the condemned religions was therefore part of the necessary training of the inquisitor, and long descriptive catalogues were compiled for their information, in order also that the people might be duly instructed and be on the watch to denounce their neighbors, these were incorporated in the edicts of faith annually published in all the churches. Much of the evidence recorded in the trials, and for the most part accepted as conclusive, consists of acts in themselves perfectly innocent and appearing to us wholly indifferent and unworthy of consideration. Observing the Ramadan, or the fast of Queen Esther, of course, would admit of no extenuation. But there were a host of trivial observances, which seemed to the modern mind altogether inadequate to the prominence accorded to them in the trials. This extreme minuteness, with which such observances were held to prove apostasy, was an innovation. Of old, the church recognized the impossibility of changing abruptly customs so embedded in the routine of daily life, and, while such practices were to be repressed, they were not treated as heresy. The great council of Lateran, in 1215, alludes to their frequency, but contents itself with ordering prelates to force converts to abandon all remnants of their old faith. It was otherwise in Spain, and the evidence on which prosecutions were based and punishments inflicted would often appear to us to be of the flimsiest character. Changing the body linen or table linen on Saturday, lighting candles on Friday, and similar observances were proofs of the most damaging character. Even eating amen, a broth liked by Jews, is enumerated among the offenses entailing appearance in an auto de fe. When Brianda de Bardaxi was on trial at Saragossa in 1491, she admitted that, when a child, she had eaten a few mouthfuls of Passover bread given to her by a playmate, and this was gravely detailed in her sentence as one of the proofs of vehement suspicion for which she was severely punished. Circumcision, in the latter period, was an evidence almost decisive, and with male defendants an inspection by the surgeon of the tribunal was customary, but in the earlier time, before the expulsion and forced conversion of the Jews, it was merely an indication that a man was a new and not an old Christian. Yet, in an auto de fe at Saragossa in 1486, Pedro and Luis de Alpasan, on this evidence alone, were sentenced to perform penance with lighted candles and to ten years of exile. Among the Moriscos, staining the nails with henna, was held to justify suspicion, refusing to eat the flesh of animals that had died of natural causes was highly damaging. A propensity to cleanliness by washing oneself was an indication of apostasy, and in the trial of Marie Gomez at Toledo in 1550, as a relapsed impenitent, one of the charges was that in her former trial she had not confessed that 
some fifteen years before, a kid had been killed in her house by cutting its throat. How slender was the evidence requisite for prosecution is manifested in the trials of a whole family in, in Valladolid from 1622 to 1624. When Dr. Jorge Enriquez, physician to the Duke of Alva, died, the body was soiled, required washing, followed by a clean shirt. A number of witnesses thereupon disposed that it was prepared for sepulchre according to Jewish rites. The consulta de fe on the arrest was not unanimous, and it was referred to the Suprema, which ordered the arrest of all concerned with sequestration. The whole family, widow, children, and servants, with some cousins, were thrown into the secret prison, and the eldest son, a youth of twenty, died from the effects of torture. After nearly two years of this, the evidence was so weak that the consulta de fe voted in discordia, and the Suprema ordered the prisoners to be acquitted. So, in 1625, Manuel de Azevedo, a shoemaker of Salamanca, was denounced because he had removed the lump of fat from a leg of mutton, which he took to a baker to be roasted. The consulta voted to dismiss the case, but the fiscal appealed to the Suprema, which ordered arrest with sequestration. The trial went on through all the forms, and when at length Azevedo learned from the accusation what was the charge, he said that he was ignorant of this being a Jewish custom, but had been told that a leg of mutton roasted better when the fat was cut out. When the defense was reached, he proved that he was an old Christian on all sides. He was not acquitted, but the case was suspended. Had he been a new Christian, he would have been tortured and penanced, whether he overcame the torture or not. In another case, in 1646, one of the charges was that the accused, in slicing bread, held the knife with the edge turned away and not towards his breast, as was customary with Christians. Trivial as all this may seem, one occasionally meets a case showing that the Inquisition did not always spend its energies in vain in following up the slenderest evidence, however great were the sufferings frequently inflicted on the innocent. In several Jewish cases in Valladolid in 1642, the chief evidence was that the meat before cooking was soaked in water to remove the blood and grease. This led to the discovery and punishment as Judaizers of a group of some fifteen or twenty in Benevente, who appeared in the Auto de Fe of 1644. As soon as one was brought to confess, he implicated others, and the net was spread which captured them all. The fact, however, that torture was freely used casts an unpleasant doubt over the justice of the result. Suspicion might be aroused by negative as well as by positive indications, and, in the Spain of the Inquisition, it behooved every man to be scrupulously exact in the performance of what were regarded as evidences of orthodoxy, as well as the avoidance of what created doubt, for everywhere around him were zealous spies eager to serve the faith. In 1635, Manuel Mardes, traveling with his wife and two other women, passed two men laboring in a field without saluting them. One of them asked why he did not say, 
praised be Jesus Christ, or praised be the most blessed sacrament, to which he imprudently replied that God was not known in his own land. The laborers promptly denounced him to the nearest commissioner of the Inquisition, who arrested him. The Calafadores voted that this was manifest Judaism, and he was thrown into the secret prison of Valladolid with sequestration. Then there came additional evidence from a cell companion that he washed his hands on rising and before eating. He denied all intention until he was smartly tortured when he confessed all that was desired. Naturally, this negative evidence was habitually sought by the tribunals. In the trials for Judaism and Mohammedanism, the accused was always interrogated as to his training in Christian formulas. He was asked to recite the credo for the customary prayers at the Patronoster, the Ave Maria, and the Salve Regina, and was made to cross himself to see whether or not he did it in a manner to show that it was habitual. In Spain there were two forms of this, Santiguarse and Signarse, the former consisting in making the sign of the cross, with the thumb and forefinger joined, passing them from forehead to cheek, and from the left to the right shoulder. The latter, in touching the forehead, mouth, and chest, with the thumb and forefinger of the right hand, or with the thumb alone. This was often a crucial test. Of Maria Gomez, it is recorded, July 15, 1550, quote, She repeated the Ave Maria, she was imperfect in the Pastanoser, and the creed, and said she did not know the Salva Regina. She performed the signo ill, but the santiguardo well. It has seemed worth while to enter thus minutely into the details of inquisitorial treatment of evidence, as it was so largely a determining factor in the fate of the accused. From this examination, it is impossible to resist the conclusion that the system of procedure was framed rather to secure conviction than to ascertain the truth. Guilt was presumed in the fact of arrest, and the business of the tribunal was to prove it. End of Book 6 Chapter 5 Part 3 Recorded by HearHis.com